Something, um, I guess, about songs like that that cause us to put our eyes on something beyond us, that cause us to put our hearts and our minds in a place that's different than just here. Not to say that we just completely disconnect ourselves, but to be in a place where we think of the angels and the holiness of God is such an uncommon thing. So thank you all for leading us. And just as we lift our voices this morning, let us be reminded that we live for something so much bigger than what it is that we um, often think of. Um, well, good morning, everyone. Is everyone doing all right? We've had like some good weather. I don't know. Some people say good weather. Some people say not, right? Is it too hot or is it not wet enough? Is it too wet? I don't know. Not wet enough. Great. I got some. I got one great. Cool. Um, well, it's summer. I think um, we finally, so we're in summer. It's uh, this, uh, one of the things that, we t- that I tend to do personally as a um, as a pastor, is I always want to teach through a book of the Bible, um, one in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament, every single year. That's kind of an unofficial or unspoken rule that I tend to do on my own, um, but it doesn't always happen, and some of the Old Testament books are super long, so it's hard to really pull it together. Um, but this summer, what we're uh, going to do is we, we're going to be studying through the book of Ephesians. Um, it's a New Testament book, um, and it's uh, a small book. It's not big in general or compared to some of the other ones, but it is a incredible an incredibly powerful book. It's one that has all kinds of stuff. It's, it's, it's written by the Apostle Paul to the saints in the, the city of Ephesus in the surrounding area. And because it's only six chapters, it actually breaks up pretty evenly. The first three chapters deal with this, this gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And then the last three chapters apply all of that. So it's going to have a direct relationship, the first half to the second half. Um, but, but what we have inside of this is some really compelling subject matter. Like it covers a little bit of everything as you deal in it. It's this extravagant grace just poured out over us so we can come to God however we want, but it also challenges us to live in certain ways according to that to be changed through the power of Jesus Christ. It talks about empowerment through the Holy Spirit, our identity in Christ, our kingdom calling in Christ. There's a lot about the Jewish and Gentile ethnic tensions, possibly and many of the commentaries that I read advocated that this is probably the main theme of the entire book. So we'll be talking about that. There's a whole section about supernatural awareness. And as Amy prayed or read over us, the reading of the scripture at the end of Ephesians, spiritual warfare and the armor of God, and, and um, what that means for us as people living on this earth. We're going to get into the controversial household codes. Anyone excited about that? Who wants to talk about submission, man? I was hoping you'd laugh and not be like, bro, no. First century servanthood, all of these things are a part of it. There's even talk of an apocalypse. Now, there's no zombies in our apocalypse, but it talks about dead people coming back to life in this book. So there's a lot that we're going to cover over the summer. Um, One of the reasons I love doing this is that during the summer, we have the opportunity that as you all are going in and out of town, maybe traveling and doing other things, um, you can track with us, obviously, by picking up the sermons later. They're always um, updated and online. But you can just read through this book, the, the, the letter to the Ephesians, and track with us and know what's going on as we're doing it. And so it works really well for a summer Um, for us during the summer for us to cover a book of the Bible. Um, All of these things are kind of to say, we're going to learn a lot from this little book, that there's a lot to check out. But but, um, as we talk about over and over, context is really, really important for us to be able to even understand what Paul is talking about. And so we're going to spend some time just sitting with the culture, sitting specifically with the city of Ephesus today. So we're not going to get very far into the letter itself, only the first two verses. Um, 
but luckily, one of the things that we have is in the book of Acts, um, Luke writes an account of the beginning of this church of Ephesus in chapters 19 and 20. And so we're going to read some excerpts from that today. One of the things I want you to notice um, here as we start is that every city, no matter where you go, if you've lived in another city, if you've grown up in Indianapolis your whole life, um, every city has kind of a life force. Have you, have you ever experienced that? Or you've gone to a city and you're like, man, there's something about this that seems different. There's like a vibe that it has. There's something to it. And every city has its own trends, has its own culture. Some of it has, um, and so, some cities uh, have so much cultural influence that they actually influence other cities around them. And people turn to them to find out what's going on in that city, to learn about fashion, design, entertainment, to learn about architecture and cultural influence. So lots of of larger cities, people will take a lot of pride in those cities, and it almost becomes, this is, this, I've heard this um, said one time, and I thought it was so uh, fitting, that sometimes the city becomes like a character in your life. It takes on a personality. It's like it's a part of the narrative of the story that you're walking through. So you have moments like people, or, or situations where people will have like a, a I Heart New York t-shirt, Right? Or, or that they have trends and um, uh, bumper stickers like Austin. I think it says, keep Austin weird, right? That's their claim to fame in the midst of that. If you go to LA, it's got its own thing. If you go to Washington, D.C., it's got its own feel. Seattle has its own feel. Some of these cities, they have such a big influence, though, it pours over. And um, the one that I've had the most experience with is New Orleans. And so I, I was saying, man, this is a place that's known for a lot of things, People go out of their way to travel to that city in order to experience the things that there's known for. There's monuments that people want to visit. There's places like the French Quarter or St. Louis Cathedral. There's history and traditions. There's even a music that defines the entire city that when you hear it, you think of this place. There are famous parades, all right? Good ones, bad ones. Celebrations, also good ones and bad ones. But there's this loyalty to this city that you don't see in many other places that almost competes for your affections um, and for you to buy into it. And so when you talk to somebody from New Orleans and you're like, hey, are you from here? They like look at you straight face and they're like born and raised. Almost like they're challenging you. Try me and find out, right? Born and raised. So you're like, all right, man. Like I just wanted to know, are you from here? And so they, 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 they have this sense of understanding if you're not born and raised from there, then you're not actually ever from there. You encounter people that don't leave the city and by that I mean ever, literally ever, all right? I took a friend of mine on a plane for the very first time. We flew to California to lead worship at an event out there when I was living there. And I'm like, we're flying up. I'm like, calm down, you okay? And he's like, this is the first time I've ever been on a plane before. Like, what? Okay, all right. So living on the same, multiple generations living on the same street because they just, they're so committed. It's not because of lack of opportunity. Where would I go? Dallas? I'm going to go to Dallas. I'm going to go to Atlanta. These are the, I mean, there's a rivalry. Sorry, I got some Atlanta. Do I have my Atlanta people? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll back up off of that one in there. But they're like, this is our place. In fact, here's, here's this interesting, there's this um, kind of known thing um, that gangs, uh, the Bloods and the Crips, both tried to come into New Orleans and establish residency for their own purposes. And New Orleans said, nope, you're not from here. Get home. So they have so much of an identity that they said, you don't belong here unless you are born and raised in this place and you don't have that kind of influence. So here's my question for y'all. What is the influence that Indianapolis has? 
We've all got some experience with it, right? What are the monuments and things that people know about this city? What is it in our city here that draws people to it? What are the food? Actually, I want to ask that literally out loud. Who's, who's going to answer? What's a food? I've asked this question a few times, uh, and I usually get the same two answers. What foods are, like, that's, that's Indianapolis or Midwest? Tenderloin. Tenderloin. <laughs> that's one. Tenderloin. What else? Corn. Oh, yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. I did not, that's not the one I'm thinking of, but... That's a perfect answer. Anyone else? Starts with skyline, ends with chili. Oh. <laughs> okay. You said it, not me. I'm, I'm just repeating what I heard. All right. So you got this. I had to get over some time uh, when, when we first moved here. People are like, you're Hoosiers now. Oh, yeah, you're not like an Indianapolisian. You're a Hoosier, right? So there's these monuments, the, the monument down at the circle, characteristics that make the city our city. People constantly talk about the cost of living here, right? There's like some practical reasons that might bring, there's an, uh, uh, people say this all the time, it's an entrepreneurial city. There's a lot of startups here, um, and I've definitely experienced that. The Indy 500 just happened, often considered a, an event bigger than the Super Bowl by, you know, financial measurements, by amount of people who come into one area at one time, by the fact that it takes over an entire month, right? It's one race, but it takes over an entire month. So there's reasons why people come here. And, and, and you start to think of like, if you don't live here, you can hear about it, but you can't quite experience it, right? But when you live here, there's a thing about it, a life force. I'm trying to get you to see. So what kind of influence might we have on those around us? So having pride in your citizenship, having pride in places that you live, it's, it's not bad, but it can become this identity that takes you over. Right? I've experienced that as well. In fact, it's so good that Jeremiah and the prophets in the Old Testament says that we are supposed to implore ourselves to seek the peace of the prosperity of a city that we have lived in and to pray for. We want to be about the place that we're living in, but as a kingdom person, it can also compete for our sense of identity, overwhelm our understanding and allegiances as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Right? And so we're going to see this play out in the book of Ephesians. As the series unfolds, you're going to see that the city is known for some things. And by that, I mean like known, known for some things. Not casually. There are some city center pieces in this, uh, in this location of Ephesus that are famously known and that people come from all over the place to see. So it has this influence. Citizens take a lot of pride in it. They have a uniquely high, zealous allegiance to the prosperity of this place, how wealthy it happens to be, and the entanglement that it has with the goddess that they are uh, uh, giving themselves over to. It's, it's really, it's an unmatched thing. I, as I've been studying this, I feel like I've been living in this city for a while as I'm learning about it. But this is, this is what I want us to kind of wrap ourselves. We can't just read this letter without understanding the context and the city is a player, a character in the narrative of what's happening. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to settle ourselves into the historical framework, get to know the people involved, understand what was the influences inside and what was influencing outside from within the city so that we inform how we read and interpret and interact with this letter from Paul to the church of Ephesus. And, and the idea is so that when we understand it, we can apply those things to our lives. But I want you to understand we can't get there without understanding what was going on inside of this. So we're going to find out that it was specifically addressing issues pertinent to the context of a very incredible ancient city, one that was well-known and famous and that to which the citizens were incredibly loyal. 
Um, what I want us to do is to read the, the first two verses just to introduce some of the people who are involved, and then we'll backfill with sections of Acts 19 and 20, and then we'll um, see some ways that we can apply that today. Um, and then next week, we'll jump into the Ephesian letter itself. Um, I do want to encourage you, I always do this when we do a book of the Bible, read the book over and over. If you get a chance, it's short, put it on. I try to introduce people to this all the time. Let it be, listen to it in your car. There's a really cool... Um, uh, a group called Streetlights that has different kinds of readings, spoken word readings of the scriptures. Um, and it kind of has these like cool beats behind it. So it's easy to like leave on and, and listen to it in the background. You can also check out Acts 19 and 20 in its fullness because we'll only be able to touch on pieces of it. So, all right, let me read Ephesians 1 and 2 to you. And then we'll, um, we'll orient ourselves around it. So it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's Holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have people involved, five parties specifically, and I want you to pay attention. We have Paul the Apostle, and he's interacting with God, right? He's got this relationship with God to inform the Jewish believers. This letter is being sent to Jewish believers so that they can understand how they're supposed to interact with the Ephesian citizens who have their own kind of allegiances. And then there are these Gentile converts that we're going to read about who are choosing to remove their previous affiliations with whatever God, with whatever economic network, with whatever oikos, we use that term over and over here, but whatever household and economy they're building so that they can reaffiliate themselves with the followers of the way, who are the, that's what they called themselves at the time, um, following Jesus. So, um, there are these five groups of people that we're going to talk about, and this is the, uh, the framework or the themes that I want us to pay attention to from here to the end of this series. It's three things. We can go ahead and throw that slide up too. It's this collision of worlds. Now, some of this is um, kind of way, the way I'm integrating when we've talked about the gospel story and what it does, but what you're going to see Paul do over and over is he, let me, let me say it like this, he assumes something. But he's also trying to advocate for the people he's writing to to embrace something. And, and in the end, it's like we're trying to understand what those things are because we live in a different time. And it'll make sense as this goes. So heaven and earth are colliding. He sees these things as completely together, but we don't always see it that way, right? And so what's happening is these two worlds are colliding. The kingdom of heaven is becoming real or realized. And just as we were talking about earlier, the spiritual realm and the natural realm, he does not see them as separated. They're interacting together. So heaven and earth are colliding. The spirit and the human, that we have tension between what God has called us to, not just in a cognitive way, but that the spirit of God is placed in us, and he wants those things integrated as well as opposed to being this um, war back and forth between the two. And then he has these two people groups that are interacting and those people groups are going to be the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers as they become one because they have a cultural negotiation then that they have to interact with. Try to figure out what are you going to be required to do inside of the Jewish tradition that is still a part of this following of Jesus in here. So all of these worlds are colliding. Heaven and earth, spirit and human, people and people as they come together. These three things are going to play out through the entire 
um, letter as we go through it. So in essence, we want to create this and see this. I want you to see this as a, a reconciliation ministry, right? Think bigger, think beyond just a small 21st century um, understanding, but all of these three worlds are having to be reconciled in the midst of this. Um, so we're taking that which has been disrupted and separated by sin and its ramifications, bringing them back together through the power of Jesus. But that also means that things that are in opposition to that coming together will be disrupted in the, in the middle of it, all right? So let's look at this in the book of Acts. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 19. I'm gonna read a big section up at the front. We're gonna capture the idea. Pay attention, kind of read closely as you're listening. Um, and as I read, it says this in Acts chapter 19, verse one. It says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at where? Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, now, now it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, three full months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, that means a few of them joined him, and, discussion, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. So for two years he's been in this city. So that all, two years and three months, and maybe a little more. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived there in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Okay, so, so there's three um, different baptisms you might have noted. I don't have time to talk about that at length, but you've got this baptism um, inside of uh, uh, three different significances, I should say, to each baptism. Multiple baptisms were not, we make a bigger deal about that today, um, but multiple baptisms in a Jewish context was not uncommon. I mean, they would baptize for um, changes in their life, uh, life changes, milestones. In fact, the washing of hands was a kind of baptizing. They would baptize their hands before eating certain things. So this is important because what I wanted you to see is they, they had not even known that the Holy Spirit existed, but now this powerful, powerful presence of God is in their midst and they see supernatural manifestations. So already those two worlds are not so separate. Heaven and earth are colliding. Verse 8 continues. Oh, I already read that part. Um, so now, now, so what I want you to see here is D Paul leaves the context that he started in this, the Jewish people, right? He's talking only to believers who are already following the way. What we can safely assume is that they had maybe been to Jerusalem at some point and heard because they got baptized by John, right? So they had to have been at the Jordan River at some point down in the, in the Jordan Valley um, hearing that, and then they went back at some point to Ephesus, which isn't that crazy because they were such, well, you know, big cities right near Jerusalem, and we're talking um, Ephesus near the um, at the bay, kind of. And so what happens is he, he doesn't get the, 
the, the following that he, that he wants, there are people that are becoming obstinate, fighting back, and he completely pivots. He says, okay, I've done everything I can in this context in the synagogue. I'm flipping over here. We're going from the Jewish people now to the Gentiles who live in Ephesus. And he goes to the hall of Tyrannus, meaning a lecture hall of their own, right? They, there's philosophers, there's Greek and Roman people speaking and trying to persuade people to follow their way of life. Verse 10 then says this, this went on, oh, for two years, again, we already talked about that, Paul is trying to enact this strategic saturation of the gospel, and it seems like it's going pretty well, okay? Lots of people begin to follow him, and I think I'm finally caught up here, verse um, 11. Some Jews who went around, oh, no, yeah, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. And their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Um, Once again, supernatural is interacting with the natural. But, um, you know, for all of the different um, critiques, and I would probably be amongst those who would critique it, uh, you know, the the televangelists who send things out and say, you know, um, pray over this cloth or whatever, there, there is some understanding of this coming from the scriptural understanding. Now, now I, don't, I don't know how often uh, uh, God tends to anoint a piece of cloth or anything like that, but you do see that there is some evidence for that. Sick people, people with illnesses, people with evil spirits are getting healed because of the residual power of the Holy Spirit coming and flowing out from the Apostle Paul. Verse 13 says, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, all right, as in we don't know Jesus, but we'll try this name out and just see if it works. They're using Jesus like a spell. I command you to come out. Now, this is um, one of the scariest and funniest parts of Scripture that you are going to read for at least this week. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this, and one day the evil spirit answered him, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who do you think you are? Who are you? The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Okay. Fun fact, co-opting the name of Jesus doesn't tend to work out in your favor. Just don't do that, right? Don't try and move in that direction. But what I want you, again, to kind of catch, we're seeing this interaction with natural, supernatural. Um, we're, We're going to get into this kind of communal part of it as well. But they're also understanding their identity in Christ a little bit more because you can't just say you have the name of Christ with you. You can't just uh, use it like some kind of incantation. There is something more to it. There's an internalization of this identity with Christ that actually brings the Holy Spirit um, with it. All right, verse um, 17. Oh, and, and one thing I, I also think is worth noting. When you start to perform supernatural events in a city, you get people's attention. They start to notice. They start to, oh, okay, there, there actually is some substance to what's going on. There's some credibility that becomes um, uh, lent, at least, to the followers of the way in the midst of this city. So, so this is saturating the city. Their, their reputation is spreading around. People are starting to want to find out what's going on, and people are even trying out in small ways trying to use Jesus' name for their own purposes. Verse 17, then it became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus. They were all seized with fear in the name of the Lord. Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. 
a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. All right, I don't know if that's like cryptocurrency back in the day. I don't know what a drachma is, um, but it sounds like it's a lot of money. And um, uh, if you've been a part of any kind of um, economic circle, when you start messing with the money, you also start getting people's attention and maybe not the kind of attention you'd want. Paul is making this giant splash in one of the most influential city landscapes that ever existed in the ancient world. And the writer mentions that this thing happens to affect the world in multiple different areas. It's disrupting and shifting their identity. It's disrupting the lifestyle of the city and the economy. And it is affecting them in a way that it's gaining the attention of people around both people who want to be a part of it and people who are offended and or have a problem with what Paul is doing. Now, I want to give you a helpful kind of overview as we think through this city and try to live in it over these next few weeks. There's some key aspects. Their identity is going to be represented with the temples and statues. I'm going to give you a picture, a couple of pictures of those today. There was a uniquely, um, and we'll get into a couple of specifics, and then later on when we get to the household code, some of the reasons there, the women of Ephesus were a huge part of the landscape and what was happening there. Um, they had a reputation that went from before the city of Ephesus was even founded, um, and it's going to come into play as Paul writes to them. And then the economic um, placement of Ephesus. It was incredibly wealthy, um, more so than you might think uh, they would... Uh, um, than, than we might think in, in terms of its size, but it had so, so much um, in terms of people coming into this city to try and see what was going on there, to see the sites that they had, to be able to do the trade that they were uniquely positioned to do, that it was incredibly, incredibly well off. So as we said, they are influential. So think New York, think Paris, think Tokyo of the first century, and people want to be like the Ephesians. People want to go there and learn from the institutions that they have. They brought in all these sightseers and religious pilgrims into this little area. And much of it was due to the cultic religious practices hosted and represented there. So there are statues and temples. The first one that we have to talk about is the goddess Artemis or Diana, depending if you want to go Greek or Roman on that. This is the goddess Artemis, Diana. According to the Greek Roman understanding, she was the daughter of Zeus and the sister of Apollo. In general, she's this symbol of generosity, which makes sense because when your city is this affluent, you think, of course, like it's because our goddess has blessed us. She has created this economy for us. And what happens when you think the goddess that you are worshiping is attributing these things to you? You become very loyal to that goddess because you don't want to mess with the money. This is bringing it all into us. So we come back to Artemis here in just a little bit um, when we come back to her statue. But just know that the perceived presence, the favor in this city is is cultivating within its people this sense of patriotic pride and citizenship. We love our God. They would, they would be excited for her. We love our city. We are Ephesus, right? They believe that we are the greatest city. We, are the, we have the greatest deity over us, and we are the greatest people on planet Earth. All right? America. Do you see what I'm getting? I'm joking, kind of. But you get us in any kind of uh, placements where we're in a group and you can have a chant, right? USA, 
USA. We have chants in ways that we identify. I don't know if they had lifted trucks with the Ephesus flag flowing behind it. But there were certainly parades, political rallies, uh, patriotic um, rallying points that would take place. In fact, here's one street, the main street in Ephesus that you can walk down even to this day. This is what it looks like today. Um, as they were walking down the streets, there would commonly be parades where people would be excited. Now, now I'm not just talking like commonly daily parades. And so people would come out of their shops as the parade would go by and they would say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians give homage, and then go back into their daily business. They had this idea of, of people walking down these. These giant parades would happen on, um, you know, on a on less frequent basis, but at least every day. And we actually see a little bit of this in Acts 19. Um, these parades are being led where they shout out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And at the end of this parade, they would get to this temple. This is what it looks like today. It's torn down, it's, it's broken up, but it survived, which is also amazing, and this is what it would have looked like at that time. I mean, that's, that's impressive. If we walked in and saw something like that, we'd be blown away. You might want to go out of your way to take a trip to Ephesus to see this temple, right? And so this temple is known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So everyone is wanting to see this. People would visit pilgrimage. They were essentially these tent-like. You know how if you go, um, you know, to Paris today, you get and get a little picture of the Eiffel Tower, a little keychain with it, or if you go to, you know, get postcards, different um, items, uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, I'm sure you can get trinkets, little trinkets, but religious trinkets. And so you could get little figurines of this temple that you would take home with you or the statue, and you would worship it, light incense to it, and all of these different things. And all around this were these tent um, gift shops, and you could wander around and purchase carvings, temple statues, take it home with you. And at the center of the temple was this giant atrium and a large statue of Artemis. So let's throw up that Artemis statue one more time so we can see that. This statue of Artemis was at the very center, and it was said to have fallen from the stars. Even Luke accounts for that inside of his um, letter to, uh, in, in Acts. And, and what happens is she was this image, this idol that they wanted to emulate, be like, reflect. And what you're going to see here is a, a contradiction between the Imago Dei where God says, don't have a graven image of me. I forbid that. In fact, you all are my images. So just be like me. Don't worship a thing instead of me. And so they have this thing that they believe fell from an asteroid. And it sounds like there really was an asteroid that fell from heaven. They might have used pieces of it with the statue. It's hard to fully know, but they had this entire mythology wrapped around it. Um, and that brings us now here to the women. As you see, um, the, 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 um, the statue, um, it interacts with the women who live there because they were this, 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 she was this great source of empowerment. They saw Artemis as powerful, so they saw women as incredibly powerful. The women of Ephesus wanted to be like this Greek goddess, wanted to be protected by her. She was the goddess of fertility and the goddess of the hunt. So she had not just um, uh, what we would think of in today as traditional roles, but, but she was also somebody who would be found in the forest hunting animals. Now, women would often go and give labor underneath this statue that was there at the very center. Um, remember that in this time, the, 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 the most, the greatest cause of death for women was childbirth. 
The likelihood of dying was very high during childbirth. And so if you had this protector who was um, this strength, perception of of, um, fertility, perception of all of these things, that of course you would want to go there. So you would have multiple people who are in the middle of labor if you walked into the middle of that atrium at the statue, hoping that Artemis would give them a a safe delivery and that it would be um, blessed. So this is going to give us a little bit more context. Have you ever read 1 Timothy 2.15 and it says something about women being saved in childbirth? And you think, that's weird, but I don't know. What, what do I do with that? Anyways, next verse, and you move on. But if you really think and stop about it, you're like, what was going on? Well, Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus. So those verses are directly related to the city that we're talking about. And inside of this context, the safety, the childbirthing, the labor, the, the protection of Artemis, we're going to make more sense of that verse a little bit later. She was also considered a cosmic mother. She was a mother and a virgin at the same time, which is interesting. She was a huntress. The idea of mother nature comes from this. She is also called a savior. And so when Paul says that Jesus is the Savior, there's going to be some conflict. And as a result of the worship of Artemis, women were given lots and lots of authority. Women were revered and women were regarded as very high in the authority structure. And in, in, in before Artemis even gets to um, be a part of this conversation, there was a tradition or this legacy that the entire city of Ephesus was established by Amazons. All right, think about the Amazon idea. Go um, full on Wonder Woman if you want to, right? Diana, this is where all of it's connected. So they believe that the Amazons, these women were so powerful, surely Ephesus could not have done this. They must be from something even before that. So it was established by this group of warrior women that now helps us to understand what these, these phenomenal, powerful, incredible women are. Um, now, now, In our day and age, it's hard to even imagine this. Um, This would have been considered a matriarchal society. So we live in a patriarchal society to which some of you are like, what? And some of you are like, obviously, man, like obviously. They had lots and lots of power. And this is hard for me. I even went to the preaching collective. I was like, can you even imagine what this even me. I can't imagine because we live in a world with such a level of patriarchy that it's toxic. Um, They, and and this was inside commentaries I read, this is like non-Christian people who write on Ephesus. It was considered a dangerous place for men to live. Toxic matriarchy? Is that, can that even be, like I have such a hard time given the context we live in that that could exist, but all of them were advocating like this is a place that was actually not a safe place for men to reside. It's considered inside of Christian and outside and in the secular world this toxic matriarchal society. And so we're going to come back to that later on. But for now, I just want you to know it empowered women, maybe to an extent that it created this toxic matriarchal society. And um, I'm going to let you sit with that for a little bit before we finalize that. All right. Um, and then lastly, the economics of Ephesus. I've already made a big deal about how wealthy they were, but they assumed that Artemis was the source of this prosperity. So when Paul challenges this assumption, he's going to get some kickback. Additionally, the very profitable sales of their statues and idols were being affected. And it says it in here. They, they're doing it to the extent they're, con- they're, they're so bothered by, by what Paul is doing that this is what we read in Acts 19.26. It cr- causes a riot. This fellow Paul, 
has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. That's how well this has worked for him. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Can you believe this guy? The audacity. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis, right? Soon the whole city is in this uproar. They're all chanting it. They seize Paul's friends. They grab these dudes, bring them into the city square, assemble. They riot. They are confused, shouting over and over this phrase. But eventually some guy named Alexander, it is always some guy named Alexander in these stories, calms them down before they're charged with rioting and he dismisses. So they had possibly the ability to lose their citizenship or at least some of their privileges if they didn't calm down. So he comes up, he's like, all right, everyone, chill out. Calm down. If you have a problem, go, there's a court system. Go take it. Bring Paul into the court system. The, the friends of Paul, um, he's trying to go in there to use this moment to advocate, but his friends are like, they're just going to kill you, man. Just stay out of this situation. And so he stays out even though he wants to go in. Alexander calms the city down, and it's in this context that I want us to kind of imagine ourselves. It's, this is the birthplace of the, the, the saints at Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, and the context that Paul sits down eight years later and decides that he's going to write out what is going on and let Timothy know what's happening and let the saints of this area have some guidance on how they're going to allow heaven and earth to collide, how they're going to allow these people groups to collide, how they're going to allow their identity and the spirit of God within them to come together. Now, remember, Timothy is the long-term pastor of this church. Letters are written to him. Um, first and second Timothy, um, these are all dealing with Ephesus. So, so we have to look at it through the lens that we just talked about. Um, and then interestingly, and I thought this was, um, again, I, I was reading some things that were not Christian, but tradition says that Mary, uh, John, after he says, you know, take, take my, my mom under your wing, John takes Mary at the end of their life to Ephesus, and that's where they live out the rest of their days. And there's a couple interesting theories that revolve around that that I won't get too far into, but it is kind of cool to think about this is where the mother of Jesus end up, and they think it's possibly, well, she, she ends up dying there, and then if you remember before you he gets revelation out. Um, he gets uh, exiled to Patmos. But they think it's possible that this was, um, because it was such a safe place for women, they thought Mary's going to be safe there. Let's get her up there. Or Mary's reputation and influence was so strong that she could have been used to co-opt the mythology of Artemis and use it for the gospel. Both of those are like the predominant theories um, of Mary and John going up there. Okay, so let's, let's kind of uh, finalize today. Um, I, I want us to get a feel for this, to get a sense for it, to understand the life force and the influence of what Ephesus was so that when we read it, we read it correctly. I want to let today's information flavor and color the way that you read this letter, the way that you read this book, because outside of the reality that we just talked about, it's incredibly hard to understand what's happening here. 
if not impossible, and it's incredibly easy to misread it, to see it through a 21st century patriarchal context, to see it in a way that we kind of uh, uh, read our own culture into it, uh, uh, to the extent that we can even twist this into very destructive theologies. So what we want to do is to rightly divide the scriptures so that we can rightly apply these truths inside of our life. Um, now, now um, if you've read Ephesians, if you've studied Ephesians, uh, at least for me, I've done some good Ephesian work in my time as a pastor. Some of the stuff that I've been able to, you know, kind of entertain and, and read through over the last, I don't know, probably five or six months as I've been prepping for this series, um, I have learned something new over and over. And then I, I pick up a different thing. I'm like, wow, I didn't know that about Ephesus. And I come into it, I'm like, wow, I'd never thought about Paul thinking it that way. Oh, man, like, as, as this orientation of theology, that really challenges me. I don't know that this said what I thought it said before, now that I understand what's going on. And so what I want you to do is to put all of the things that you've thought of, if you've been in Christian circles, honestly, if you're coming at this fresh, you might be in a better position, because there's statements and words and phrases that have been used, um, you know, in our modern history to do some very bad things. Come at this fresh, please. Let what I just said flavor it. And the second thing is to consider how you view those three things. What do you do in your mind with heaven and earth? Is heaven a place that you escape to at the end of your life? I mean, that's been a pretty predominant understanding and we've taught on that. We, we, don't, we don't adhere to that necessarily. It's a place that we get to participate in. It's a kingdom that we get to be a part of today as we bring Jesus' life to earth today. Heaven and earth collide. Spirit and human, do you think of yourself as disintegrated or integrated? Do you have interrelations with people that God wants to integrate but because of the system structures, biases, etc.? You can't re reconcile those two worlds. So let's, let's evaluate our hearts and minds, allow our own worldview to be challenged because Paul's counter-narrative to the goddess Artemis and the way that the Ephesians lived was so disruptive it caused riots and almost got him killed. The Greeks weren't ready for it. The Romans weren't ready for it. It's not unfamiliar to God's people. They had to live through Egypt, and they did. They had to survive Babylon, and they did. But if we're honest, America is not ready for the way of Jesus. We're not ready for it. We're not, I mean, this shouldn't be that spread. We're not a Christian nation. That's not a thing. It's not ready for the way of Jesus. It would love to co-opt it and do whatever it wants for its own purposes and call it the kingdom, but it's not ready for the actual Yeshua Jesus. And so let's let this interrupt our lives and if we have the audacity to embrace this calling become people of the kingdom and dare to live according to the pattern of Jesus it is going to be disruptive to the context that we live in just as it was in the day that Paul spoke these words in the synagogue and then moved over to the temple of Tyrannus to proclaim these things this pattern is disruptive so let it come and touch you first then we'll touch the world with it this is my prayer as we begin this journey through the book of Ephesians y'all ready for it all right, let's pray, uh, and we'll be done for today, um, and uh, uh, begin reading this book, saturate your life with it. Lord, thank you 
for the, the, it's like the triangulation of all of these books. We have Timothy, we have Acts, we have Ephesians, we have John who ends up in Ephesus and gives us revelation at the end, Lord. So God, give us what you want in the midst of this. What is it that will enliven us, create a passionate faith in us that we would want to be so, um, so heavily disrupted that we become different people and then bring that out to the world around us? Um, Father, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us freshness as we come into this. Let you, Spirit, Holy Spirit, come and make new some of the things, wash clean some of the ways in which we have maybe problematically interpreted the things that we're about to read. And as we try to reintegrate our lives with heaven and earth, people to people, and our identity and our calling in life, Lord, We want to welcome that. Give us a heart of curiosity. So, Father, we ask for this right now, powerfully in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you agree, say amen. Amen.